Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you are listening to The Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Matthew Dix. Matthew's biography is difficult to read out because he does so many things, but he's well known as an internationally best-selling author and also a multiple Moth Grand Slam champion. He also teaches and writes fiction, as we'll discuss in the episode. So I know Matthew because I read his book, Storyworthy, which is easily the best book I've read on storytelling, and I've read many of them. It was educational, I learned a ton, I put a bunch to practice, but also it was genuinely actually interesting. (laughs) Through reading it, I laughed, cried, and just generally loved the book. So in the conversation, we discuss what makes a good story and also a good storyteller, and talk about if a good storyteller is is born or made. Uh, We pull examples of of good storytelling techniques from movies, literature, and stand-up comedy, and also talk about how to truly and actually inject storytelling into marketing blogging and advertising, which is talked about often, but I don't think ever really given justice as to how to do it effectively. We also cover some of the deeper reasons for for why to tell stories, such as the deep therapeutic benefits and and basically creating connection with other people. So I love this conversation. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Matthew Dix. I'm going to start out with a little bit of, I don't know if it's an annoying question, but it's kind of the born or bred kind of thing. So can anyone become a great storyteller? Yes, 100%. I have worked with the worst storytellers that I have ever walked the earth and I've turned them into very good storytellers. Yeah. Thankfully, you don't need to, you don't need to be born a storyteller in order to become a storyteller. Do you think it's the storyteller or the story that, that, you know, makes that successful kind of execution of the story? Well, I think it's probably, I mean, it's the storyteller who ultimately can sort of breathe life into the thing that they're trying to share. You know, I've worked with people who have an amazing story to tell and tell it so poorly that you don't want to listen to it. And then I strongly believe in the idea that we can take tiny little moments and make them deeply interesting to other people if we craft them well. So you know, I think it's the storyteller that brings life to the content. And oftentimes the the quality of the content is not incredibly important if you understand what you're doing. Mm. The tiny moments thing is interesting to me because in the past, when I thought about storytelling, I always thought that it had to be some grandiose thing, you know, some wild thing that happened on a, a travel adventure or some like deeply horrifying experience. But in your book, you mentioned, I think it was the... It might've been the homework for life. I can't remember the specific uh, verbiage you used, but you basically go through and write down like a miniature story each day. And sometimes those mundane little, or things you think are mundane end up becoming very insightful when you start pattern connecting. Is that something that you, you recommend in terms of like finding your story or yeah, I guess like what makes a good story in the first place? Yeah. I mean, to find a good story, to find something that worth telling, you have to find something that is going to connect with other human beings. So oftentimes the big stories are not very connecting in terms of having your audience say, I understand how he feels, you Mm -hmm. know? So I tell a story about the car accident where I die and come back to life, you know, thanks to some paramedics, I go through a windshield. And that's one of those big stories that people will never connect with. If I just tell the story of the car accident, because just, just not enough people have gone through windshields to think I understand how, how he feels. You know, that story is actually not about the car accident, but about 
my friends showing up later on when my family fails me. And people understand that. They understand what it's like to be let down. And they understand what it's like to have someone pick you up in an unexpected moment. You know, when I tell that story, people cry at the end all the time. Mm. When my friends show up after my parents have failed me, people cry every time I tell that story. No one has ever cried, not even once, when I describe the death that I experienced before the paramedics bring me back to life. I go through a windshield, I bleed to death, I stop breathing, my heart stops beating. People just blink at me. They're, they're completely unmoved. And the reason is because they don't understand it. It's not an intelligible thing for that they can relate to. So to find a good story, you have to find something that other people will feel. Maybe that has not happened to me, but I've experienced the feelings that you are describing and therefore I can now connect to you. So you're trying to find some semblance of a universal emotion in terms of like what resonates. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's other things too. You have to have some change over time. You know, it's not just a series of events, despite the fact that they might be incredible and amazing and unbelievable. If there isn't actually a change in you fundamentally and either the, who you are as a person or the way you think about yourself or the world, then it's just a series of remarkable events that will ultimately be forgotten. And structure-wise, that change, like I guess the model that comes to mind for me is the hero's journey. You know, you're kind of reluctantly called to action. You uh, find some sort of a mentor figure who pushes you farther than you think you would have gone yourself. You end up fighting the dragon and you emerge on the other side. You're, you you come back home a different person, right? Is, I'm sure that's one structure. Are there more than one structure or... Yeah, I hate what does that, that change structure. look like? Yeah, you I hate, hate the hero's that. journey. I hate the hero's journey. I hate the hero's journey for a whole bunch of reasons. One is that it implies that a story requires a hero. Whereas many of the stories I tell, I am not the hero. I have actually discovered my failing over the course of the story. It is a story about me possessing hubris and in the end discovering that I'm not worthy of the hubris. So mm-hmm. I'm not out slaying dragons. I'm out discovering truths about the world and myself that I did not see before. And it's not always positive. In fact, many of the stories I tell are not sort of, I'm the hero, because people don't want to hear stories about you being the hero. They want to hear more relatable stories where you're going to be vulnerable, where you're going to share something that most people would not share. I also hate the word journey because it implies that stories require sort of you to go out somewhere and do something where I've actually told stories, really deep and meaningful stories that people love, where I probably take three physical steps within the confines of the story. You know, nothing happens in the story in a physical way. It all takes place in my head. In fact, that's how most stories happen. Hmm. Most of the stories that we tell, most of the stories that I tell, if you were watching me at the moment that I fundamentally shifted in some way, the change that happens, you would never even know what happened because all stories, like all these moments, they're happening in our brains. When we change our mind about something, there's no physical manifestation of it. It's just in our hearts and our minds, we go, oh, my God, I can't believe what just happened to me. But if you were watching, you'd just be like, well, there's a guy and he's walking through his life. You would never know. So, you know, the hero's journey works great if you're creating some kind of fictional story that you want to deeply Mm. affect people and you want to create a hero that everyone's going to cheer for at the end. But if you're not looking for that, if you don't want to write a story about a hero, if you want to write Walter White and Breaking Bad, that is not the hero's journey. That is the hero's fall. Actually, every tragedy Shakespeare ever wrote is not the hero's journey. It is the hero's fall. So I hate the hero's journey. It's a fine little thing that works in some stories, 
but should not be relied upon in any way whatsoever. Why do you think the hero's journey resonates so much in terms of popular culture then? Or if it does, I mean, when you think about the most popular movies nowadays, it's, it's Marvel. I guess there's some in inverse, you know, you, you mentioned Walter White and Breaking Bad and some of the DC stuff gets a little bit um, uh, avant-garde in terms of how they tell the story, but you know, the biggest ones, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, like wh why does that resonate in terms of our pop culture? Well, I think that, it's a convenient way for our brains to process a story, particularly if we want to tell the story about a hero, someone we're going to root for, Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, you know, Frodo. These are people we want to root for. So it makes sense that this sort of pattern works or this structure works in a fictional realm. We like, as human beings, to see patterns. We like to be in comfort. We like to feel like we understand what's going to happen. It's why a show like Law and Order continues to go on, even though it's essentially the same story every single time. People find great comfort in the idea that the police are going to show up at a scene. They're going to find a dead body. Someone's going to make a joke about a dead body. We're going to get the opening credits. Then we're going to be in a police station. We're going to watch them talking about the first witness they're going to go interview. It's all the same, but there is comfort in that. I don't think that there's revelation. I don't think that there's inspiration. I don't think that there's sort of education in terms of understanding yourself better. You don't finish an episode of Law and Order and go, I understand myself better as a human being. Mm. I feel more connected to Lenny than I did before. Right. I kind of think that's the truth about a, a, a movie or a, the book's Lord of the Rings. I don't think we finish it and go, I understand myself or the world in a more profound way. I think what we say is that was fun. That was fantastic. That was an exciting adventure. But we don't walk away going, I see how that could happen in my life. Whereas if you watch Breaking Bad and you see a guy like Walter White and you go, oh, in a moment of desperation, if I had cancer and I knew that my family wasn't going to be taken care of, what would I do? I might turn to crime too. I mean, why not? You've only got six months to live. And if you can feed your family and ensure their future, I understand this guy, right? You can't understand Frodo. You know, not on the level that you could understand someone like Walter White. So I think the hero's journey is a lovely way of telling a story, but not a realistic story in many cases. Yeah, it's I don't know if I would quite venture to say escapism in some cases probably is, but it sounds like it's like the pop song of storytelling. Yeah. Whereas other forms, you know, you, you kind of know what you're going to get. It's similar chord structure every time. And there's something soothing about that. Yeah. But then when I think about the stories that really resonated with me in movies, it's like the ones that veered off script. You know, Tarantino films, I think sometimes do that. I think um, they, they often start at the end. So that's pretty interesting. And then one that I wanted to ask you about in a different context is 500 Days of Summer. Yeah. Because I think you mentioned in your book, and this this might be faulty memory on my part, but you mentioned not stating the, the thesis to the story up front. Correct. But in 500 Days of Summer, something interesting is they inversed your own expectations as the audience. Yes. They told you this is not a love story. And then you go through this, this experience where you think it's going to be a love story. You think it's going to be some sort of a hero's journey, or at least like that rom-com boy gets girl kind of thing, but then it completely diverts it. So I don't know. Those, those tend to stand out to me. Yeah. Well, I think that they feel more real to you. 500 days of summer is the way every single relationship in your entire life will be until you find one that is permanent, right? Mm -hmm. Every relationship we ever have will ultimately fail until we find the one or maybe the one, and then, you know, 20 years later, the another one, right? So mm -hmm. most relationships, almost all of them fail, except for a few. So we watch that and we go, yes, that happened to me 12 times. 
I have my wife who I love right now, but the 12 previous ladies that happened to me. So we understand it. We can relate to it. We, we feel it deeply. It also has the power of surprise, which is just the most joyous thing you can offer an audience ever in the world. I just think that when you're genuinely surprised by something that's happening on a page or on a stage or on a screen, I think it just creates so much excitement in our brains that that they sort of presented a world for us and then they flipped it on us and we never saw the flip coming. So I think that movies like that, you know, it's why The Usual Suspects, it's why The Sixth Sense, these are movies that stay with us because it's a moment where we all singularly feel something. Everyone in the theater, if you watch The Sixth Sense, right? Everyone in that theater at a singular moment went, oh my God, right? And that is a beautiful, revelatory, you know, communal experience that we all share. And I think that's why they're so powerful. That element of surprise is interesting. How do you, do you have an approach that's conscious towards invoking surprise, whether in your stage performances or your written word? I, I could see it going, you know, you overdoing it or, or doing surprise at the wrong time and, and basically jarring the audience as opposed to like impressing them or delighting them. How do you right. invoke surprise in an effective way? The first thing you have to do which no one ever does is you just have to ask yourself, when was I surprised in my life at the moments I was surprised are the moments my audience should also be surprised. Hmm. If you just take that step, which is the minimal step you have to take in order to sort of create a surprise in a story, you're already better than most people. Because what happens is once we've had a surprise in our lives, it's no longer surprising to us. And because it's no longer surprising to us, we don't feel obligated to surprise anyone else about it because now it's just commonly known to us. So if you just go through the story, you're getting ready to tell someone and you say, well, when was I surprised? Small and big, like little moments that are just sort of one-off, you know, sight gags and things like that. And then bigger surprises. Every story should have a surprise because every story should be about change, change over time. And there's a fundamental moment when we change. And that moment is always surprising for us. If we change our minds, if I used to think this and now I think that, that's surprising to us that we changed our mind. If we look at ourselves and say, I used to be this kind of person, but now I just realized I'm this kind of person. That's surprising to us. We don't feel it as much. We don't feel it as a like, wow, but that's really what happens inside us. We have to give that to the audience. So the first step is to just say, when should the audience be surprised? It's when I was surprised. Let's find a way to make that work. And do you, when, when you realize that, do you structure wise, storytelling wise, do you kind of lead up to that with any sort of like foreshadowing the story that I'm thinking about is your McDonald's, um, uh, charity one. Like, cause yeah. I feel like you had like three hints or something, you know, in the car, you're like, I looked at my McDonald's uniform and you, you've kind of got this idea forming. You're like, what's he going to do? And right. then the surprise is obviously what happens in the conversation, but do you foreshadow it? Yeah. Well, I try to create wonder is what I describe. I want the audience always wondering, and I will often misdirect. So I want the audience wondering what's going to happen next at all times, but I also sometimes want to lead them down the wrong path. So in workshops, for example, when I tell that story, you know, ultimately I put my McDonald's uniform on and pretend to be a charity worker collecting money. I steal money from people pretending to be a charity worker, which is not great, but it happened when I was 19. So forgive me. Uh, But what I do in that story is in the workshops, I'll tell the story all the way up to the moment I put the uniform on and I stop and I say, what do you think I'm going to do right now? And what people mostly say is you're going to go work in a McDonald's for a while to earn the money you need to put gas in your car. 
And I always say, well, like you understand how ridiculous that is, right? Just because you're driving around with a McDonald's uniform doesn't mean you can walk into some random store in a different state, say, hey, I'm going to work here for a couple hours because I need some gas money. And also you have to pay me in cash, right? None of that makes sense. But I love it because they're wondering about something and they're never wondering about the thing I'm really going to do because I'm misdirecting them. I'm pushing them in one direction, giving them hints about one direction, a McDonald's uniform. What do you do with a McDonald's uniform? You put it on and you work in a McDonald's restaurant. Sometimes people have said, I thought you were going to sell it at a thrift shop. And I, and I, again, I say, yes, because on a Sunday somewhere in rural New Hampshire, I'm going to find a thrift shop that finds value in a McDonald's uniform. That is what they purchase all the time. But again, they're desperately thinking for something. You know, they're seeking the answer. And that means I get to surprise them. The other thing about surprises is almost always a surprise is predicated on information that you already have. You have to have, you have to have the audience be aware of things in order for the surprise to pay off. What people often do is they take that information that the audience requires and they put it right up against the surprise and they light it up on like they put it on fire so that the surprise is always ruined. So I have all these strategies that I use where you layer information into a story in such a way that the audience knows it, but does not recognize its importance. That's the trick. Mm-hmm. What can I teach my audience? What can I make sure they know? And then how can I make it seem completely unimportant so that the surprise can be preserved? If we can do that, then the audience can genuinely feel that beautiful moment when when the world flips, you know, and they it all clicks. Moment. It's like, yeah. you can go back and like, there's a trail of breadcrumbs that you somehow missed. It, yeah. it, I think that happened in fight club. You look yeah. back and you're like, Oh, he was the right. same person the whole time. Yeah. And, and they show it to you in fight sense. club. They actually go back and show it to you how it would have been possible. Right. Sixth sense does the same thing. They actually go back and say, and by the way, here's all the moments that you thought you saw one way. This is how they actually happened. Yeah. And you go, that's oh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I it's like almost instead verbally. of foreshadowing, you're, you're, you're almost pulling back like the rubber band. So it snaps harder when it lands, you're, yes. you're doing a little misdirection trail to make the tension, the contrast even higher. Yeah. But you can't let them know you're pulling back the rubber band. That's the trick. Most people just feel like they have to light everything up and then it just ruins everything. So like fight club, when they put that together, I read the book as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the careful nature of putting that movie together so that you could legitimately go back and go, oh my God, he's the same guy without at some point in the movie going, wait a minute, he might be the same guy, right? That balance is so hard to achieve, but when it's achieved properly, you get that beautiful, we'll never forget Fight Club. We will forget 95% of the movies that we will ever see in our lives, but we will never forget that moment in Fight Club. There's almost something disappointing about when you guess it too early. Like yes. when, when you watch like a whodunit film and you're like, I kind of think I know who did it. Yes. And when you're right, it's almost disappointing. Oh, it's terrible. You know, M. Night Shyamalan is always trying to surprise us in the same way he surprised us the first time. I remember he put out a movie, The Village, which is essentially a movie that appears to take place in like the 1700s, but it's really taking place in modern day world, except these people have chosen to live like a 1700s. 1800s life while not telling their children that. So it's essentially a story told from the perspective of children who think they're living two centuries earlier than they actually are. And I was 10 minutes into that movie when I knew what was happening. And I turned to my wife and we didn't, we didn't know each other well enough for me to keep my mouth shut yet. But I turned to her and I said, it's 2016 or whatever year it was. And she was like, why did you do that to me? And I said, well, 
because I'm sad now that I know it. And I guess I wanted to make you sad too. <laughs> right. So I quickly realized like, there's no point in spoiling a surprise for someone who hasn't figured it out yet, but it is, it ruins everything. I just felt like, well, I, now I know the movie. So, so whatever, you know, it's the same thing in a movie where, you know, the, the good guy will never die. You know, mm-hmm. there's very little surprise plot armor when you just know there's no way the good guy in this movie can ever die. That's also a disappointing way to, to have a movie. That's why the Marvel movies work so well. They kill characters off who I can't believe they kill off at times. I like, mm-hmm. wow, really? We're going to lose this person here? You know, wow, you're going to destroy Asgard? The entire planet is gone forever? Like, they're not they're not afraid to, to knock, you know, real important people off the pedestal. And that's what makes that those movies so interesting because you just never know what's going to happen. Or Game of Thrones, like the first season, who you think is the main character is just uh, executed. And you're like, I'll never forget it. I'll what never do I know it. to be true about f- film at this yeah. point? Yeah, there's a movie called, there's a movie called Air Force One, maybe. There's a movie, there's a plane movie, like Save the Plane movie. And I remember they killed off one of the two main leads, like in the first 15 minutes of the movie. I was like, is he really dead? He's not coming back, Right. Actually, if you watch the movie Gravity, George Clooney dies really early in that movie. He comes back later in the movie as a dream character. And for a minute when I was watching it, I was like, this movie sucks now because there's no way George Clooney could have survived that. And then it was clear she was dreaming. And I went, okay, this movie's okay again now because she can dream about the dead guy, but he can't be alive. Well, that's the other thing I was going to mention with regards to surprise is there's also disappointment when it's too too clean, the duex machina kind of thing, where at the end it was all a dream or some miraculous plot kind of saves the storyline. That's also strange because then you don't have that trail of breadcrumbs that you can look back to and say, oh, that was how that was going to happen. If only I had known the whole story. It's like, well, that seemed out of left field. So it's like, how did you just save the day? You know? Yeah. When, when a story is told, what an audience wants to feel is that every moment was essential Mm -hmm. and that nothing was said just because, the storyteller want to share a part of their life that wasn't relevant to the story, but felt important to them, you know, or in a movie, there was an extraneous scene that was funny, but was not tied into the plot in any way. Things like that can happen. And that's always disappointing to an audience because we really do want to feel like this is a causal chain that's being built and every link is essential. And if one link broke, the story would not hold up anymore. And that's a good way to determine whether your story is too long or even good. Can we take a scene out? And is the story still making sense? Well, then take the scene out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it can be disappointing when things don't link together. So some of these things seem a little nuanced. Um, I think after you learn them, they're quite apparent, especially when you notice them in film. But in that that first thing we talked about regarding like making somebody into a great storyteller, what are the things that you see beginner storytellers, what, what are the mistakes they make? The most common ones, and the most obvious ones that kind of kill the the success of their stories? I think the first thing I always notice is how they handle the first minute, let's say, of a story. It's the most precious territory in a story. It's your opportunity to engage your audience, put confidence in them that you're you're going to do a good job. It's the promise that the time we're about to spend is going to be worth it. And oftentimes the beginning of stories uh, contain lots of exposition, which should not be in the beginning of a story. And they contain like these weird non-story sort of philosophies. You know, someone starts a story with, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who look at a tree and think it's a tree. 
And then there are people who look at a tree and know it's something more. And then they start their story. And I think, well, you wasted the first two sentences for your story. I'm not going to remember it. It means nothing to me. It's almost like you know the cleverness of it, but I don't know your story. So I will never know the cleverness of it. And I also didn't ask for it. I asked for a story, not for some weird bit of philosophical wisdom at the top of the story. So they love to start with that. They, people always feel like they have to teach us about their world before they start, they start the story. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a one stoplight town with a candy store on main street and the pharmacy down in the end. And Mr. Whipple owned the hardware store. And I'm already, I've turned it off. Literally. Mm -hmm. If it's a podcast, I'm done with you because this is not a story. This is a description of your hometown. And even if Mr. Whipple and the candy store and the one street light are relevant, you chose to open with the physical description of a town which is never going to be entertaining. It's never going to create wonder. It's never going to engage me. It's not going to make me think, I wonder what will happen next. Those things can be layered into a story, but they should not open a story. So I think that the first and biggest mistake I see people making is they just assume the audience will attend to what they have to say. Mm. And if a storyteller assumes that no one wants to hear anything they have to say, and you must desperately at all times convince them to listen to you. That's the proper approach to telling a story. I mean, that's how I look at writing on the internet because it's almost too obvious, like how much other content and how many other tweets they could be looking at. So it's like, how do I earn the attention of this person? Yeah. Well, the, the problem is we tell 99.9% .9 of the stories of our lives to people who love us, our friends and family, and they will give us our attention. They will give us their attention even if we're doing a bad job telling the story, which we often are, if we're not thinking in any way, if we're not thinking before we speak. So what happens is we get positive feedback on bad storytelling most of the time. We tell a terribly told, you know, probably ineffective, irrelevant story to our loved one, and they smile at us and we think we're doing well. And then we wonder when we go out into the world why people don't want to listen to us. It's because they don't love you. You have to stand on a stage in front of 500 people who don't know you get a positive response from them to know that you're actually doing a good job. You cannot trust your friends and family because they love you. And that's a problem. So if someone wants to practice storytelling, not because they want to do this uh, professionally, they don't want to be a speaker and maybe they don't even want to perform, but they just want to impress their dates or, <laughs> or, you know, their friends and family, would there be a valid way to still practice in those settings? Or would you recommend doing something a little bit more formal in front of audiences who don't know you? No, I, I don't think you have to go to an audience. I actually think the most important audience is yourself. I think you are the first audience for every story you tell. And if you can get a sense of the qualities of a good story and what sounds like a good story, I actually think you can be a hermit who is telling stories about yourself to yourself. And there's enormous value in that as well. I, I think the, the finding and crafting of stories from our lives can do great things in terms of finding meaning and making sense of our lives. And then if we want to take those to our audiences, even if your audience is, most of my audiences are not 500 people on a stage. I'm not, it's not every night that I'm on a stage. Most of my audience are, audiences are 24 fifth graders. You know, my wife and two kids at the dinner table, my in-laws, my buddies on the golf course, 95% of my audiences are those audiences too. And I'm still trying to entertain them and do all the things that I do for an audience when I'm sitting in front of a thousand people. It's, it doesn't change very much. So a question about those formats, because you've mentioned, well, you do fiction, um, yep. you, you write nonfiction, you speak on stage, and then you teach. 
are the storytelling techniques that you use in those different areas different or do you can you can you learn one technique that applies in all of those situations like when when you write fiction is that storytelling different than the, the type you're doing on stage yes 100% when you buy a book you're offering the author 8 to 12 to 20 hours of attention and you're giving the reader control over the narrative they can control how quickly they read it. They can reread, they can pause, they can ask questions. That, that's an enormous tool that the reader has. And they also expect a world building adventure. They expect more detail on the story because they understand that a novel is a certain number of pages and they want to be transported into a new land. In an oral story, when I'm speaking out loud, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to hear about the contours of the countertop in the kitchen where I'm carving the meat, right? Whereas in a novel, they might actually find that like deeply gratifying. Oh, I understand the granular nature of this world. Nobody has ever asked for the granular nature of a world when someone's speaking out loud. So the books are always going to be more detailed. They're always going to have more nuance. I'm, I'm going to be less likely to bang somebody over the head with an idea in a novel than I will in a story. Because when I'm telling a story out loud, I control the speed at which the content is being delivered and received. And I need to be cognizant of that at all times because it's so easy to lose an audience member or an entire audience if you do a bad job. And then it sounds like you're, you're teaching if you interweave storytelling is going to be more similar to the stage type because you're trying to capture attention while educating. Yeah, very much so. I, I mean, the only difference really in teaching, it's exactly the same. If I'm standing in mm -hmm. front of fifth graders and I'm telling a story, it's exactly the same as if I'm on stage. I don't allow them to interrupt my stories. I say, when I'm done, I'll answer all your questions, but just listen to the story about how I had a raccoon when I was a kid, right? Um, and then I go and tell the story. They desperately want to ask questions in the middle, but I don't allow it. If I'm on the golf course or if I'm having dinner with friends, they will interrupt and I have to acknowledge that. And I live with that. I, I don't love it. I wish they would just shut up and let me finish the story because I know it will come out better and be more entertaining for them. But but, but I'm not in performance mode when I'm playing golf or, you know, having lunch with my wife, they're going to ask questions. And all I do is I mentally check where I was so that I can figure out a way to relaunch once it comes time for me to relaunch into the story. Okay. And then for, for the nonfiction stuff, like your book, you, it was enter entertaining beyond a typical business book, you know, because you actually did tell the stories, right? Like I actually had a lot of fun. I think I cried in certain sections, laughed in certain sections, but then you're also teaching tactical things. So it's not, it's not pure story. So I guess like for our audience of content marketers, this is something we talk a lot about, which is like, how do you, how do you tell a story in a blog post? You know, you're writing for a B2B SaaS company and like you're <laughs> right. hoping to tell some sort of a story. So is, is that format different or how do you, um, I mean, you're, you're, you're trying to transmit a message, but you're trying to make it entertaining and you're trying to do through, through story. How right. does that work? Well, there's a bunch of ways. I work with a lot of marketers too. Ultimately, the strategies of telling a story are all the same. They apply to what the marketing that you just described, as well as the stories I tell on stage. The methods of delivery and the perspectives that we take are all going to be different. So when I'm working with, you know, I was recently working with a, a director of marketing for a large tech firm that you probably interact with every day. And um, she was ro rolling out a new product and we were working on the best way to do it. And it turned out that her inspiration happened on a Tuesday night, sitting at her table alone, two glasses of wine in. She had a 
she had a napkin sitting beside her with a pad and she wrote three words down that became the entire campaign. That was her moment of inspiration. And it was great. It was her, it's fantastic. Her ideas were fantastic as they always are. When it came time to build the deck and make the presentation and do the talk track, I said, you got to have the two glasses of wine on the Tuesday night and the napkin. Like we got to take a picture of that napkin and put it into the, in, into the talk track and into the, into the deck. And she didn't want to do it. And this is a problem I find so often when I'm working in corporate America is everyone wants to take themselves out of the story. Hmm. You know, they could place themselves within the story keenly, you know, in a very specific way. And yet somehow everyone thinks that round, white and flavorless is the way to go. You know, like, Mm -hmm. don't put any edge or color into this thing. I don't want to be in the thing. Why would I want to be in the thing? I don't know. Because if you were in the thing, people would go, wow, now I know who you are as well as the content you're delivering. Somehow people think in marketing that it's what they're saying, the the actual message that they have that is going to be relevant to the audience. And it's never the case. Like how many times have you ever gone like and listened to someone speak and you're in the hallway afterwards and you use the restroom. And by the time you're to the car, you're never going to think ever again about the person who is speaking to you. It happens Mm -hmm. all the time. And it's because they never take a moment to like express vulnerability, which Tuesday night, two glasses of wine and being alone with a napkin, that's vulnerability. That is, yeah, nine o'clock on a Tuesday, I'm two glasses of wine and I'm thinking about work. That is how sad my life is. And yet here's what came of it. So, you know, that is one way to market using storytelling, which is put yourself in the damn marketing, like allow Mm. yourself to be a character, but you can also do other things. We often use the second and the third person when we're creating marketing campaigns. So it's either going to be, we're going to create a character and we're going to put that character into the deck. So like Kevin is going to be our, is going to be the person who's going to like adopt the new product or begin the service. And Kevin's going to have a personality. And by the time you're done, you're going to be thinking about Kevin. And you're going to be thinking about how Kevin used the product or engaged in the service, you know, or use the second person, which causes the audience to be the character. Mm -hmm. You say, you are doing this and you are doing that. And if you're strategic and tactical and almost cinematographic, that's not a word. If you're thinking about cinematography in the proper way, you can bring enormous emotion into people by using that second person. So the perspective and the delivery is different, but the principles remain the same. And that that definitely resonates for for the first person thing. I started to think about. I mean, I don't know if he's a marketer per se, but are you familiar with the writer Wait But Why? No the blog. No. Okay, so he does these long form. Maybe they're like almost mini books. They're like fifteen thousand word articles on pretty esoteric and novel subjects. Like he'll break down what Elon Musk's visions are for for Neuralink or talk about like the Fermi paradox or something like that. But as you read the article, I mean, it's hard enough to capture, capture somebody's attention in a headline, let alone a 15,000 word article. Yeah. So as you read through, he injects himself and in his own learning journey through, through the process. Like he doesn't just lay it out in this linear um, kind of boxed in way. He's like, well, I started here and I thought if I need to learn about the Fermi paradox, I need to learn about um, astronomy and like how we, you know, understand what life is out there or like what planets are out there. But then I had to go down this rabbit hole of like the historical, you know, philosophy behind this stuff. So then I took this little diversion and he almost brings you on the journey with him. So you kind of feel the frustration you feel like you've gone down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So that's He's also telling a story of change. He's mm-hmm. saying, I used to not know a thing and then some stuff happened and now I know a thing and you get to learn the story of that change taking place over time as well. 
And you really click smart. with when he does. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Bill Bryson does that. Uh, he's a, he's a travel writer. Now it makes sense sort of that he's traveling and writing about traveling, but he's not writing about the places he goes. He's writing about his experience in the places that he goes. I don't read Bill Bryson books because I'm interested in any of his content whatsoever. I don't care what Bill Bryson writes about ever. When he puts out a book, I'm going to buy and read the book because I like Bill Bryson. Hmm. I had the same thought when I wrote Storyworthy. I could have just written a technical manual on storytelling, but instead I said, I want people to know me. I want them to believe in me. I want them to feel like I am their friend. So when I'm teaching them things, they feel like, you know, I know this person and I'm being entertained by this person. If we're not entertaining, we're not doing anything. You know, Kevin Smith, the filmmaker says, mm -hmm. whenever you're standing in front of people, doesn't matter how many or for what purpose, the first thing you should do is be entertaining. But I can't tell you a single time in my life, I think, when I worked with sort of a corporate marketer and their first thought was, how can we make this entertaining for the audience that we're targeting? That was never the thought they had. And I always tell them it's the first thought they should have. And they just often look like I'm crazy. They look at me like I'm crazy, even though they tell me we really want to do storytelling. But as soon as we actually engage in what would be storytelling, they're immediately like, well, we can't do that. You know, <laughs> somehow they want storytelling, but they want it to be like the most benign yet super entertaining version of storytelling there ever was and that those things just don't work out. Totally. So um, how did you get, how did you discover your talent for storytelling? Did you get into fiction first? Did you get on stage first? Like where, what's, what's the origin story? Well, I, I was writing fiction. I, I, I was writing fiction. I, I started writing when I was 17. Hmm. Uh, I started writing because of an English class, because of an English teacher, you know, because of a day in an English class, I decided I was going to be a writer. I started writing my classmates term papers in high school and making money doing that <laughs> was my first writing gig. I've written every single day of my life since I was 17 without missing a day. So I'm a little insane, but I was, so I was writing fiction first. I was publishing novels. And then my friends told me to go to New York and compete in story slams for the moth. They told me you've lived the worst life of anyone we know. So you'll be great. And I thought that was the reason why now, you, you know, those things are not the best stories to tell. But that's what I thought originally. So I went to New York almost on a dare to tell one story on a stage and then never do it again. And uh, as soon as I got on the stage, I I felt like, wow, this is this is good. This is where I belong. You know, I used to tell people I stumbled into something that I was good at because I won the first slam and I've won more than anyone else before. And I had never trained for it, you know. So I just figured... I was naturally good as a storyteller. And then my wife heard me say that one day and she said, you're such an idiot. You think you were just like born this way? And I said, well, I never went to storytelling class. And she said, you've been writing stories since you were 17 and you publish novels. Don't you think you have an understanding of story that other people might not have? Also, you've been a wedding DJ for 25 years. You literally stand in front of strangers and just tell them what to do, speaking extemporaneously to people who don't want to hear you. So you've learned how to like engage an audience to get them to move in the direction you need them to move. And then every day you go into a classroom and you speak to the worst audience that there ever could be 10 year olds. And all you do is tell them stories to get them to learn how to do long division. She said, you've been training for this all your life. You just didn't know it. And I went, Oh, you're probably right, honey. <laughs> Very smart. So you, you just unconsciously learned the lessons. I mean, you weren't thinking through, well, I don't know, maybe you were like, did you, 
you know, read books and take courses on how to write good fiction? Or was this all just getting reps and practice and, you know, getting feedback as you went? And then all of a sudden you've got this unconscious basket of knowledge around what makes a good story. When it came to the fiction, I went to college and got a creative writing degree. Although now looking back on upon backing now the now that I'm looking back upon it, it didn't really help me that much. Uh, mm-hmm. Honestly, a poetry class was the most helpful of all. It taught me how to cut cut to the bone. But the fiction classes weren't that helpful. All the fiction I look at that I wrote in college is terrible. It's nothing like anything I write today. It's not good. It's very earnest and stupid. So the college didn't help me. I think it was the reps, like you described. As far as the actual storytelling, I was doing things that I couldn't actually articulate until I started teaching it. People wanted to learn how to become better storytellers, and I would bring them into my workshops and they would tell a story and I would come home and go, why the hell are people doing it this way, honey? And she said, I don't know, because they haven't been doing it all their lives. Like you go teach them. So I'd have to deconstruct my own process in order for them to reproduce it. So I think to myself, well, what do I do? Well, I mean, I do this in the beginning of every story. Why would you not? And it occurred to me, oh, no one does that. Like, or very few people do that. So it was through the process of teaching that I was actually able to create a book like Storyworthy, which is really just the reflection of years of teaching, which was me taking apart the process that I had somehow inherently found for myself without articulating it specifically. That's interesting. It, it almost sounds like that would be a harder process to, to go back and deconstruct what works. And then not only that, but why the underlying reasons for like why a surprise works in this way. Cause you, you almost have to like, I don't know about controlled experimentation, but you almost have to like do a counterfactual. Like, what if I didn't open it like this? What if I opened it a different way? Well, this is why it wouldn't work this way. And then you kind of like have to go dive into that specific thing versus just going through and getting feedback and unconsciously saying, okay, this worked. So I'm going to do this more often. And then you're good. You had to go back like and almost retrace that journey. I did figure out what, what the hell you were doing the whole time. Yeah. And sometimes you, I sort of wouldn't know what I was doing consciously, you know, and I'd tell a story and I would do something in that story, some strategy, and someone would ask me about it. And I go, oh yeah, that, that is a good strategy. I use that often, I think. And then I'd go back and listen to my other stories and I'd be like, I did it here. I did it here. And then I'd find a story where I didn't use it. And I'd be like, oh, I didn't use it here. And it could have totally been useful. So mm-hmm. as I was going back through my catalog, my ability to use my strategies became more consistent because as I gave them names and was articulating them and teaching them, suddenly all my stories got a little tighter because now that I understood my process on sort of a technical level, I could apply that technical level to everything I was doing. Whereas before it was inherent and therefore a little sloppy, was a little less consistent. You know, I believe in like breaking my rules. You know, I set all these rules out for storytelling. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. But I also strongly believe in breaking all those rules once you know them, you know, Mm -hmm. memento, right? Is a movie told backwards, right? Mm. But you don't get to tell Memento, the movie told backwards until you know how story works. You can't write the backwards movie until you understand how a forwards movie works. Then you can break the rules. So I still have stories that I purposely break rules and people will say, well, you didn't do it in this one. And I'm like, I know, here's the reasons why I didn't. I tell you, you can break rules, just know why you're breaking them and know them before you break them, you know? Well, there's a phrase in music. It's like, learn to practice scales and then you can play jazz, not the reverse. Right. Exactly. Yeah. How did you, what did you learn about um, capturing attention from, from doing wedding DJ sets? Oh, well, a couple of things. One thing is I'm really good on the mic, which sounds silly, but 
the man who used to record all of the moths, story slams and grand slams, his name was Paul Ruess. There was a night when he came to me and he said, boy, you just know how to cut through the audience with your voice on that microphone. How do you do that? And I said, well, it's, it's 20 years of dealing with 200 drunk people and I have to get them to move. I had to find a way to to focus my voice through a microphone in such a way that people would pay attention to it. And I didn't understand that that was a skill until I discovered all the people who can't do that. You know, Mm -hmm. people who just don't understand how to use a microphone and don't have that level of expertise. It's odd. It's odd to say you can use it in a certain way. And yet, you know, if you had a sword and you had been using your sword for 20 years and I had a sword and I'd been using it for two years, you would inherently know how to use that sword in a way that I could never begin to imagine. Right. And that's sort of what a microphone is for me. So that's one thing. I also learned that like the opening sentences of what you're about to say are so critical to getting someone's attention. You know, it's very quick that you learn as a wedding DJ that if the first sentence does not garner attention, you will never get their attention, you know, Mm -hmm. because you either have it instantaneously, or you're going to have to stop talking wait two minutes and then attempt again to get their attention. And that's again, the primacy of the opening of a story. That's the idea that it's the first minute of a story that is going to be so critical or the first three sentences that a wedding DJ speaks to a raucous group of people who don't want to listen to you. How do you find a way to get people's attention that way? And then holding it with some, you know, I know that like I have sort sort of, I have certain verbal um, patterns that I understand that work pacing, depending on a situation, speaking faster or slower, louder or softer. You know, I understand that I can get loud and get someone's attention and then I can bring my voice down and they'll actually, their volume will come and match mine as I'm working mm-hmm. as a DJ. I can get the audience to actually get quiet by I can by me getting quiet, but I got to start up with them. And I do things like that in storytelling too. You know, whenever I get to an end of a story and I want to say something important, I'm going to get really quiet as a signal to the audience that I'm about to say something important and as a signal, like lean in a little, you know, get excited here. I'm going to, I'm going to share something of import with you. All of those things I picked up through DJing, but again, sort of unconsciously, I learned them as a DJ. I took them to the storytelling stage, not realizing that's, that's what I was doing. Mm. Getting an audience to lean in and quiet down seems like a superpower and something that would take a lot of practice, but it's something that, um, that stand-up comedians seem to do very well. Yeah. Do you, one, have you ever tried stand-up comedy or do you want to? And two- I have many times, yeah. I I, I, I don't know if I call myself a stand-up. I don't know if, I feel like you have to get up like two or three nights a week on stage to really call yourself a stand-up, but I've been paid to do it. And, you know, I've done it, you know, a couple dozen times, which every single time I do it, it feels like an enormously heavy lift. What's your stand-up comedy style? I'm guessing it's more towards the storytelling side than the uh, Mitch Hedberg side. It's funny. It wasn't originally because I felt like if I was telling stories, it was just cheating. I was like, I can already tell funny (laughs) stories. So if I'm going to do stand up, I should tell jokes. Mm -hmm. You know, I should Mitch Hedberg kind of thing. Um, And then the first time I did it at an open mic, they had an iPad strapped to a pillar and had a five minute countdown. I had five minutes. I didn't have to fill the five. You know, it's just an open mic. And I thought I had five minutes of material. I had jokes essentially. And they went well. It was a room full of comics and a few people. So the the laughs were not extreme because comics don't laugh at comics, but they were good enough. I felt like this was a solid five minutes, but I got on stage and it was only a solid like three and a half minutes. And so I looked and I saw I had 90 seconds left and I could have walked off stage at that point and been very successful and felt like I did a good job. But I heard my wife who was in the audience laugh at the last joke. I heard her laugh. 
And I knew I had 90 seconds left. And for some reason, I just started talking about how when my wife and I got together, we were going to have that list where you get three freebies. Like if you run into Tom Cruise, George Clooney, or Brad Pitt, (laughs) and they want to have sex with you, you get to have sex with those people, right? Mm -hmm. And we sat down one night and she gave me her list. And it was like those three guys. And she said, what would your list be? And I remember saying my list was the divorced woman at work who seems a little fragile, the lady who lives across the street who thinks she's going to be single for the rest of her life. And my wife was like, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, I'm playing the game strategically. Like if we're going to give each other freebies, I want to take realistic freebies and you can have all the George Clooney's you want. And she's like, why do you have to ruin fun things like that? And I just told that story in the last 90 seconds and it got the biggest laugh. I prepped like hell for those jokes, which were fine and they got laughs, but everyone thought that little thing at the end that was unprepared and just a story that was triggered by a laugh from my wife got the biggest laugh. And that was the moment I thought, I'm going to tell stories. I'm going to not sort of tell the same kinds of stories that I do in a storytelling show, because I'm going to allow myself some diversions. I'm going to allow myself to sort of pause and linger on things that I'm funny. Whereas in a story, I'm constantly looking for forward momentum. You know, I'm willing to take segues and things like that. So I'm a little, I'm a little less plot driven, you know, and get to the end driven and stand up. And I don't need to necessarily change over time like I do in a story. You know, I can just tell an anecdote that is very funny. There's no change over time in that anecdote, except my wife had to change over time. She realized I've married a monster, you know, Uh, but it's her. That's her story. That's not my version of the story. Uh, But that's the difference. But it's terrifying. Stand up is terrifying. I would imagine. Yeah. And that's genuinely impressive to think of something like that on the spot. So it sounds like the storytelling approach is much more strategic. You're writing out every kind of like, um, I mean, I'm sure you iterate over time, but you, you kind of know where the pauses are going to be. You know where the the line drop is, the mic drop. No, I don't. No. I don't write anything. I've oh, never wow. written a single word that I've said on stage once in my life. That's uh, wild. Everything yeah. is done orally in my Jay-Z head. style. <laughs> yeah, I just speak it out loud. Where In the car, the grocery store. Uh, you don't record it or like do you? After I'm happy with it, I record it. And okay. once I have a recording, I sort of have it, uh, but I don't write it out. Nothing. Is there a reason you don't write it out? Part of it, you know, my wife says is laziness and that's possible. When I write things down, they just don't sound the way I speak. You know, novels are a little more formal. And although you don't have to write in complete sentences, probably 90% of the sentences in my novels are complete sentences. But when we speak out loud, we never speak in complete sentences, or we speak in enormous run-on sentences and chopped bits. And for me, as soon as I try to write something out, it doesn't sound like what how I want to say it. So I just say it. And then when I'm happy with it, I record it. Sometimes I record bits of it at a time. I'm also really auditory and non-visual. I think when people write things down, it helps them remember what they want to say by being able to look at the words on the page. Sometimes you know it because they're like looking up and to the right, which is really, mm-hmm. they see the page up and to the right. But I'm I'm so non-visual. We lived in the house we live in now for 10 years when uh, we were driving home one day and uh, somehow we were talking about the color of houses. And I said, well, we live in a yellow house. And my wife said, we do not live in a yellow house. We live in a tan house. And I said, it's yellow like the sun. And she said, it's tan like a tree. And we argued about it. And then we turned onto the street and I looked at my house and I said, oh my God, I live in a tan house. 
that's how non-visual I am. You know, my wife has said, line up 10 brunettes in a line, all the same height. Matt won't be able to pick me out of the lineup. Not true, but a little bit of truth in what she says. So writing things down, it doesn't help me to to remember anything. So that's, that's not a purpose of it. I'm just super auditory and remember everything I hear and can mostly remember everything I say. So for me, that's just the way it always works for me. Yeah. It sounds like you don't have any strong opinions about what, what is best or worse. No, except I have a strong opinion on, I don't think people should write things down word for word. And I know standups mm-hmm. do. Uh, like George Carlin used to, and then some standups do it all ad lib kind of, but. Right. Yeah. yeah. When, I'm, when I teach people to tell stories, I say, we have to remember our stories, but we don't memorize them. If you memorize them, mm-hmm. you're really just like a person in a play reciting lines they're just your lines but you've written a play you've written a one person play and then you memorize the lines and now you're reciting them but if you remember your story meaning you memorize the first few lines maybe you memorize the last few lines you memorize laugh lines and tricky transitions but mostly you just remember what you want to say and you have a plan for how you want to say it but if it all falls apart you still can tell your story if you've memorized it, every sentence becomes a link in a chain. Mm-hmm. So if you lose a sentence, now your chain falls apart. And that's when that's when people are on stage and suddenly they're silent mm-hmm. for 30 seconds, which feels like nine years. You know, it's them trying to find the next sentence, which is weird to me because I, I think, well, you did what you're talking about. You don't know what the next sentence is, but just keep talking about the thing that you were doing. Say it in a different way, but they can't because they're stuck in memorization. So I don't like any of that. I like there to be flexibility of thought and flexibility of language. I like to be able to change on the fly so that if I'm telling a story that's supposed to be funny in the first minute, I'm not getting any laughs. I just change my story. I don't Mm -hmm. change the content. I just pull all the jokes out and try to lean into sweetness and heart instead. You know, or if I get a laugh on something I didn't expect to get a laugh on, I say to myself, can I, can I get a call back in on that later on in the story? Is there a place where I can reference that again? If I'm memorized, I can't do any of that flexible thinking on stage that I like to do. Yeah, I like to hear that um, because I, when I would speak, it was more so for business conferences, but I would try to interweave my own my, myself into the story that was just natural. Um, but I, when I would try to memorize every word, I, I got more anxious. So I yeah, felt more terrifying. rigid on stage, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So then when I would just know, it was almost like knowing the story itself or knowing what I wanted to say in the topic so well, gave me more confidence because I knew I would miss a word or two. So it's like, all right, in that cir- circumstance that I know is probably going to happen, like I'll at least be able to finish the talk. So it almost right. gave me a little bit more fluidity and a little bit more stage presence because I wasn't so worried about every little word. Yeah. It increases anxiety for sure. I, uh, I did a show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music one year for the moth, 900 people. And I was in the show with another person, this Vietnam veteran. And the woman who was directing both of our stories, she's a friend of mine. She was talking about how nervous she was about the veteran and his story. And I started to get jealous that she wasn't thinking about my story and thinking about me. So if I finally said to her, I said, why aren't you, why aren't you worried about me? I have to go out there too. And she said, you'll never stop talking. She said, you might lose your place. You might make a mistake, but you're just going to keep talking. You're just going to tell the story in the non-perfect way. But I don't worry about you suddenly pausing in the middle of your story for a minute while you're searching out a line. 
you just, you just keep talking. So I have nothing to worry about with you. Like you'll be fine. And I understood what she meant. Mm-hmm. I, I never understand when people stop talking. Cause I just think you did that thing. Just tell us what happened next. Even if it's not what you wanted to say, you know, say it in its imperfect way. That's better than nothing. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Um, are there any weird or surprising ways that storytelling has transformed or improved your life? Oh, tons. <laughs> you know, I, I used to think I was going to tell stories just to entertain, you know, stand on a stage, make people laugh. Honestly, competition was a big deal for me. I like to win. So when I can go do something and make people laugh and then be declared the winner at the end, that was, that's all I needed. When I started telling stories, well, it made my life so much better. Like there were things in my life that were always hard for me. You know, I was homeless for a period in my life because my parents threw me out of the house when I was 18 and my family turned their back on me and people who could have helped me didn't and people who wanted to help me couldn't. And that was a hard thing for me to deal with for a long time. It kind of infected my life. It was a thing I thought about a lot and it bothered me all the time. And then one day I decided to tell the story of my homelessness and in telling it, not realizing it was going to happen, it became a chapter in my life. I gave my homelessness a beginning and an end, whereas before it sort of was an infection. So suddenly, instead of an infection, it was really like two months. It was I didn't know it was going to be two months. You know, that's the thing about homelessness. I tell people, even if you're homeless for six days, if you thought it was going to be for six years, it's devastating. So it became a chapter in my life. I was able to find meaning and purpose that I didn't see when I wasn't crafting it as a story, but just feeling the weight of it. I saw that there were people who helped me that I sort of discounted their help because it wasn't a mom or a dad, but that doesn't mean it was any less valuable. And then I made it like art. You know, I told it on a stage and then people immediately came to me and told me about their bouts with homelessness, things that they had never spoken about before because they thought it was embarrassing and shameful, which it was at the time for me. But now in retrospect, I can speak openly about it where a lot of people don't get that opportunity or never feel like they can. And then I just started telling it to lots of people. I told it to my students. Every year I tell my students that story. And one year at recess time, a little girl came into the room, one of my students, and she told me that she and her mom had been living in their car all summer. And although they were in an apartment now, she was afraid they were going to lose the apartment. She would have to move back into the car and then she wouldn't be able to come to school anymore. So I've got a kid living with anxiety that I have no idea exists until I tell my story, right? Same thing happens when I tell them a story of my arrest to my students. I get kids come and say, my dad's in prison. My mom's in prison. I never thought I could talk to anyone about it. I always have to say I wasn't in prison. I was in jail. It's a very different thing. You know, I don't want you to, you know, I don't want you to make my experience any more than it really was, but I make myself available to people. So I'm the bearer of more secrets than you could ever begin to imagine. You know, five times in my life, I've had a woman come up to me and talk to me about her miscarriage even though my story had nothing to do with miscarriages or babies or anything, just I chose to be vulnerable. And the woman who had a miscarriage, who had never told anyone in her life about it, decided I'm going to tell that man whose name I'm not quite sure of about my miscarriage. And that's happened five times. So it's very strange that once you start telling stories, people feel like they know you and they feel like you are a receptacle of the things that they haven't shared with anyone else before. Yeah. I mean, all of that resonates. Uh, I've been diving into the world of like therapy the last couple of years. And the first point that you made, um, therapists talk about this as, you know, trauma and attachment kind of wounds. 
uh, progress forward in your present day life because you, you haven't processed and kind of put the bow tie on them and a narrative reframing. Yeah. So it's, it's frankly a form of therapy. I mean, the way you, you, you made it sound there, it's like you're processing it through the act of telling it and bookending it. So it's not actively, uh, you know, like protruding in, into your present day life. So that, right. that, that part's fascinating. And then the second part is something that I've only realized in the last couple of years, which is when you open yourself up and, and become vulnerable to your friends, like they'll also become more vulnerable to you and all of your relationships <laughs> tend to deepen. So yeah. it's like this, this magic secret that was in front of me the whole time. But yeah, lo and behold, you, you make better connections when you open yourself up. Yeah. And strangers too. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very true that I am, I'm the person that people turn to a lot. When I get ready in the morning, I'm sitting at my computer at school. I put a chair next to me because people just come in the room and they constantly want to talk to me. And rather than standing while I'm sitting, which is awkward, I've just learned to move a chair next to me. When I got a new principal, he didn't realize that he was coming in every day to like share things with me. And one day he said, you know, it's so convenient that there's this chair here, you know? And I said, well, it's for you. (laughs) It's not convenient. It's purposeful. I knew you were going to come in. So all of those relationships, it's very true, but there's so many strangers who reach out to me all the time because they don't have a person in their life. They don't have a friend who's being vulnerable. You know, right before the pandemic, I told a story in New York, not just a story about, it was about my daughter and a stupid thing I did that, you know, hurt her feelings. And uh, when I got off stage, a woman came up to me and she grabbed me and she pulled me in. People touch me all the time. You tell a story, they feel like they, they, they grab my forearm and they squeeze my forearms all the time. So she grabs me. And she pulls me in close without introducing herself to me. She says, every time I go into someone's house, even my own mother's house, I have to steal something. And then she pulls me in super close. And she says, I've never told anyone that before. So she's a 40 year old woman dealing with mental illness, has never spoken about it before. Saw a stranger on a stage, tell a story about a stupid thing he did as a parent. And she went at last. This is the person I'm going to share my mental illness with, my secret of my life that I'm a kleptomaniac who can't control herself. She shared it with me. And that is like one of a million times that has happened to me. That's wild. Do do you feel some burden with that sometimes? Or is, I mean, I definitely get that you connect with people faster, but in some cases I could feel like now I'm- no, the I mean keeper of secrets or or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. I I keep secrets. I don't feel it as a burden though. It's always come easy <laughs> for me. Like, you know, I, I find out that a friend of mine is pregnant, and she's also a friend of my wife, and I don't tell my wife she's pregnant because because my friend says don't tell anyone I'm pregnant, and I just assume that means Alicia, my wife. And then later on, Alicia finds out she's pregnant, and I say, yeah, I know, I know, two months ago. She's like, you didn't tell me. And I said, well, she told me not to tell you. And then I find out later, well, wives are excluded from the don't tell anyone. But I always always thought, like, if you tell me not to tell anyone, I'm never going to tell anyone until I'm allowed to. So it's not that kind of a burden. I mean, with the with the kleptomaniac, I told her, I said, listen, you could actually get some help. You know, I'm definitely not the rot, I'm not the one. I don't know if she got help, but I said there's definitely help. You know, I had a 16-year-old boy at a high school once come up to me at the end of a performance and whisper in my ear. I can't pee in toilets. I have to pee in the corner of bathrooms, which is a thing as an elementary school teacher. That's a strange, but occasional thing that happens to boys for some reason, not usually 16 year old boys. Usually Mm -hmm. it it goes away around eight, nine or 10, but this kid had been doing it all his life. He whispers it to me and then he runs up the aisle to get out of the auditorium, but I'm able to identify him and point him out to the school psychologist so they can get him some help. 
Uh, you know, but even if I hadn't, I never feel like it's a burden because I always feel like if someone says something to me, they took a first step towards mm-hmm. sort of getting the help. I was happy to be in a, an open receptacle to receive their story. And I always think like they'll eventually get what they need. And this might've been a good first step for them. Yeah. That's powerful. Are you, um, are you going to write more about storytelling or can you talk about your next, your next book? Yeah. Well, I'm writing more about storytelling, but my next book is called Someday is Today. It's a book about creative productivity, sort of if you want to be a person who wants to make things or build things or start a business or chase your dreams, I think sadly, the creative people of the world are sort of the least efficient people when it comes time to making good use of our time. You know, the question I get asked the most in life is how do you manage to accomplish all the things you do in a single day? And the book seeks to answer that. I sort of, just like storytelling, kind of, I deconstructed my life and said, how do I do this? And I looked at all the strategies and the philosophies and thought processes I go through in order to take advantage of my time. I interviewed my friends and my wife. What do I do? You know, Alicia knows all about my craziness. So she knows all the things that I do to make sure I can maximize every minute of the day. So that's what that book is about. And it's written a lot like story worthy. It's written many, many stories inside, so it can be entertaining. And then I have a new storytelling book that's just about done, which is not the how to tell stories, but the why it's uh, it's like that story about my homelessness. That's part of it. It's the, let's take our traumas and put them into chapters and let's the deeper benefits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you don't need an audience for the second, you know, the new book is even if you want to just tell stories to yourself, it's going to be enormously powerful for you. And here's why. So, so it's that. And so that'll be coming. We're also going to re-release story where they, you know, I have probably about 70 pages of new content and a workbook to come along with it. So mm-hmm. we'll re-release that at some point too. The workbook sounds fascinating. And to, to your point on the benefits of storytelling and more on that, one thing that I found most beneficial outside of just injecting some of this stuff into my tweets and, and LinkedIn posts and stuff is the... I don't remember the name of this exercise. It was the one where you just did stream of conscious writing. You know, you just yeah, crash take out and a notebook, yeah, crash, crash and, and burn. burn. Yeah. yeah. So that, and it's also, I don't know if it's the same thing, but in the, the book, the artist's way, they talk about morning pages, yeah. you wake up and write three pages, stream of conscious. And I've been doing that for about a year now. And I find like you, you wake up and you're like, Oh, I'm a little tired. I need coffee. And then the next sentence is like, I'm tired because I, you know, worked too late last night. And then you're like, well, why did I work too late? And then, and then a page in, you're you're writing about your childhood or something, you know. And you just get to this place that you never would have would have guessed. It's it's this really strange way to tap into like subconscious. Yes, so. yeah. I think the the one thing I, I know about morning pages, and and I, I the first thing I do every day is I write a blog post for mm-hmm. you know since 2003 I haven't missed a day of posting something on the internet. So that's sort of my warm up, I guess, my morning pages. The thing I always tell people about crash and burn is. The one thing that makes it different than stream of consciousness is I think we all sort of have a filter when we're writing and crash and burn says, get rid of the filter. Mm. So that if I'm writing about something in a crash and burn session, if I'm writing about baseball and my son playing baseball and then off, like just in the periphery of my mind, you know, suddenly I'm like thinking about paint painting when I was a child, you know, but I'm on a flow with this baseball thing and I like it a lot. And I think it's going to become something crash and burn says, 
throw the baseball stuff away. You can deal with it later. There's something about painting when you were a child, bring that in, you know? Mm -hmm. So we allow the, the new idea to throw out the old idea, even if we're in flow with the, with the current idea. Cause I think that flow really represents nothing more than comfort. Discomfort is take the thing that seems to be working, push it aside, take this new thing that makes no sense to you and explore that in a way that's going to be less comforting. So we have to encourage ourselves to allow the discomforting thoughts to crash into the flow that we're experiencing at that moment. So I think that's when I find the most interesting things that are completely unexpected. You know, I typically start with an idea. I look around the room and say, oh, I'm going to write about the shed in my backyard. I'm going to start there. And I might get into a really comfortable flow with it. And then suddenly some strange sentence appears in my head and I say, goodbye, shed. Here's the strange new sentence. And what will, what, what will come of that? So that's the, that's what I try to do. It's a strange and difficult process of, of letting go to what you thought you wanted to hold on to. Yes. You can always go back to the shed. I always say like, I'm not discarding shed and I can probably get back into that flow up, but I'm not going to be so worried that I won't get back there. I'm going to be more worried because I'm doing a, I'm not writing at that point. I, I always think this is not writing. This is idea generation. Therefore, I'm looking for a multitude of ideas and ideas I never would have thought of before. So I can't be like, wow, this is really working out. That's not the purpose of this next 10 minutes of my life. The purpose is, can I find something that I'd completely forgotten about or something new I'd never occurred to me before? Those are the things I'm looking for. Um, with your new book on productivity, I, w- I actually wrote down, uh, you know, what's your production function? So I wanted to ask that anyway, because you write all the time, you teach, you do all these things. What's the secret? How do you get so much done? <laughs> well, there's a whole book on it. Uh, <laughs> you could summarize this in 30 seconds. That would I know. Be there's really no summary, really, except to say that most people say that they value time and no one really does. And what most people see time as, they see it as increments of 60 or 120 minutes at a time. They often think, well, if I don't have an hour or I don't have 30 minutes, I'm not going to get anything done. So I'm not going to use the time. My wife wrote the foreword to the book, actually. And I heard her read it today. She was there with me. And she describes what I do is finding the little black holes in our lives that most people ignore and taking advantage of them. And so I view minutes as precious when most people view hours as precious. So most people say, well, I can't write unless I have an hour. And I say, I can write in two minutes. I can write three good sentences in two minutes. And if a book is comprised of somewhere between five to 10,000 sentences, every time I write two or three good sentences, I get a little closer to the end. And I view the value in that where I think most people throw all that time away. So it's, it's that understanding. And it's the understanding that the person we are today is very untrustworthy when it comes to how we should use our time. The person, the person I am right now should not be trusted. If I was given the option, I would just eat cheeseburgers, watch the New England Patriots and have sex. Those would be the things I would do at all times. But what I instead do is I throw myself to the future and I ask the 100-year-old version of myself. I, I, I honestly look to that person and I say, should I watch Netflix tonight, even though I'm home alone and this would be prime writing material? Or do I deserve to watch this show? And the hundred year old version of myself says, when you're on your, when you're on your last day and you're looking back at your life, you're never going to think 
I wish I had binge watched more TV. I will be instead thinking, I probably could have written one more book if I had applied myself or, or I should have played with my son more. I always said no when he asked me. The 100-year-old version of myself has never allowed me once in my entire life to say no to my child when he says, will you play a game with me? I've never said no. This version of me wants to say no all the time. You want to play Monster Freeze Tag? No, I don't want to play Monster Freeze Tag. I'm listening to a podcast. I'm writing a book. Uh, I'm going to get on the bike. I'm going to go play golf. That is what this version of myself wants to do. But the 100-year-old version of myself says, he's going to be out of the house before you know it, loser. So go play with him. Don't be an idiot. Mm -hmm. So it's that framing in terms of how you use your time and that understanding. And that's a hard understanding to have. I only have it because of, you know, an experience that happened to me when I was 21. I, I, I became keenly aware of the value of time, particularly at the end of your life that I think most people just don't have. So I try to offer that philosophy to people in an attempt to help them get there. I love that. Um, it's so much more regarding like your mindset and mental frame. It reminds me of something that I read, um, from Ryan holiday. And I guess this was a stoic idea, but they would always remind themselves memento mori remember you will die. So it's basically like imagining, you know, that you could die at any time. So how do you want to spend the time given that knowledge, you know, basically making it front and center. But I actually think I like the model of looking at your future self even more because it still invokes that feeling that time is, is finite and unpredictable, but also it invokes you and like what you would want yourself to do, you know, instead of like this general kind of vision that you're going to die. It's like, what would a hundred year old me be proud of if I did today? Exactly. That is what I think all the time. What, what does that person want me to do today? Because this version of me definitely wants to live in the moment. And sometimes that hundred year old version of me says, go to the Patriots game. I know you're yeah, fine. Live in the moment sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Go live in the moment, like live in the moment. If the moment is actually worth living, mm-hmm. the moment is never the television, you know, that moment never exists for me. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, you know, but the moment of the Patriots game, the moment of driving three hours to tell a five minute story at the moth, that's actually worth it. Someone's in the car with me for the, we're going to have a great time. The, if the moment is worth it, live in the moment, but so many times people live in the moment, but the moment they're living is completely stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're living in candy crush moment. You know, I'm like, what is, what are you doing with your life? Do you realize how angry you're going to be at yourself for playing a, a video game on your phone for two hours today? Like you, you should just, I should put a pillow over your face right now. It should be ending. But, you know, when the pandemic came, you know, I have a therapist for my PTSD and, uh, you know, he's aware of the fact that I sort of live as if every day is the last day in a really intense way. We've actually tried to pull that back a little because it just, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the best way to be all the time. But when the pandemic came, I was explaining to him how I felt like everyone caught up to me all of a sudden. And he said, like, you are uniquely qualified for the pandemic because all of your life, every single day, you have assumed that people are going to come and kill you. Like, that's Mm -hmm. just how I live all the time. He said, and now the entire world feels like something has come to kill them. They're all panicked. They're all anxious. And you're the only calm one because (laughs) you've lived with this all your life. And that's how I felt. I felt like I've been telling you all this forever. You've all been walking around the world as if you're not going to get hit by a bus. And I've been telling you, you're going to get hit by a bus. And now the bus has arrived and you're all panicking. And I'm going, I know it's like this all the time, not just today. It didn't take COVID to to make me understand this, but it took COVID for a lot of people to understand it, which is, I think, why people are quitting their jobs and reevaluating their life. 
they didn't face it in the way I faced it. And they probably didn't come as close to it as I came to it. But just knowing there's a virus out there trying to kill them, suddenly they realized I should not be making widgets every single day in an unhappy way, you know? Yeah. I felt the same way outside of the social isolation aspects of that. Like the first two right. months, I just kind of poured myself into the things I wanted to do. But yeah, some people freak the fuck out. You know, it's it's the first time they've ever been confronted with that sense of mortality. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Steve Jobs said he has this great quote. It's in my book. It's something to the effect of uh, the best decision making tool I ever had in my life was my sudden awareness that I was going to die someday. When mm-hmm. he get diagnosed with cancer suddenly everything came clear to him. So I don't want you to have to get diagnosed with cancer in order to make better decisions. And I don't want you to have to have a gun put to your head and the trigger pulled like I did in order to make good decisions. And I don't want you to have to get COVID to have it happen. But if you can start thinking about that 100 year old version of yourself, that might get you there instead. I could probably talk to you for another two hours. There's a million rabbit holes I wanted to go down, but this is a, I think a beautiful way to end the podcast. Um, so I guess the last question would just be, where do you want to point people? Where, where should they look you up online? And you know, if you want to talk about your books or, or promote anything too. Sure. Well, if they go to matthewdix.com, they can basically see everything. You can subscribe to my blog and read what I am thinking every day. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have novels that are written for adults, six of them. And uh, Storyworthy is my storytelling book. And Someday is Today comes out in June. It's available for pre-order right now. So if you would like to pre-order it, that would be fantastic because that helps me. Uh, So, you know, all that. My wife and I produce a storytelling podcast called Speak Up Storytelling. We we take the stories that are told in our live shows and we deconstruct them on the episodes. So we haven't recorded anything this year because COVID and kindergarten teaching and all of this, but we're about to get ready to start re-recording. But there's about 110 episodes in the catalog that you can go and essentially everyone is a class on storytelling using a different highly entertaining story so you get to hear a good story and then hear us deconstruct it and thank you so much there's so much valuable stuff in this conversation thank you i uh, i always enjoy talking about things like this so i really appreciate the opportunity 